Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Diode, a series of short pulps written by me, Simon Lacey. Tonight's episode is called The Vacuum, and follows a woman by the name of Sophie Hermer. Things go a little awry for her, and you'll see why. So, without further ado, The Vacuum. The space hall was adrift around Jupiter when I saw sirens float over from Callisto. There was a knock on the airlock door. I stepped over the large aluminum tub in the kitchen with Frank's lifeless body hanging over the lip. My blouse was soaked in blood and my hair was in a tangled state. My hands stuck to the doorknob as I tried to open it up. Ma'am, the police officer said as they stepped inside and inspected the space hall. I stood to one side as the taller one with dark curly hair stooped to take a look at the stab wounds in Frank. The shorter blonde officer looked me over. Uh, About an hour ago, he received a muddled call from Frank. I'm assuming this is Frank here? I nodded. It's not what you think, I said defensively. Then what is it? He's a clone. I tried making him last week and he just went crazy today, I said cringing up. Fucking clones, said the large man over the tub. Do you have your credentials? The police officer asked me. The taller man was craning his neck down, peeking into Frank's lifeless holes. Yes, I said as I rummaged through the cupboards and drawers, searching for the paperwork. Uh, Here it is, I said gingerly, handing it to the officer, trying to get as little blood on it as possible. Sophie Hermer, the man mumbled to himself. Yeah, that's right, I said quietly. What? He asked. That's me. I'm Sophie Hermer. He turned back to the paper and punched the information into a small handheld computer. The other police officer was prodding the wounds with a pen as the fabric unglued from Frank's skin. Well, it all checks out, said the shorter blonde cop. Where do you say you got the genes for this clone from? Uh, Selman's the other day. Do you remember the serial number for it? No, I misplaced it in all the excitement. This is my first time cloning. Well, you really should report this sort of thing, said the shorter cop. Should we send out a cleanup crew? No, I'll be fine. I've got an airdrop in the back, I said to the young police officer. Well, sorry about this, ma'am. That's a scary thing for a single woman to go through. If you want to talk to... I'll be all right, I said gingerly. The taller cop tipped his hat at me as his reserved blue eyes glinted from under the visor. The police left at a slow pace back to Callisto as I dragged the heavy body back to the airdrop. The holler was empty now. The dim light shone above the kitchen sink. I moved the stained cloning tub into the closet so I could mop up the floor easily. There were flies buzzing around the kitchen sink and a pile of dirty dishes. I didn't want to be here. The stink of birth and death was soaked into the tiles. I scavenged for the keys and took off in the cruiser. (laughs) 
Hi, welcome to Selman's. What can I interest you in today? said the Twinkie salesman at the entrance to the store. The place was a mega outlet with tubes, tubs, compressors, cultivators, and cryogenerators hanging from racks on the ceilings. Information, I answered to the young man. How long does a clone live? Well, our standard clone lives 12 years, but our deluxe frames can withstand up to 15 years of service. I myself am a... Do you have a gene list? Well, sure, right over here, he said, guiding me to a computer terminal. Take your time. Is there anything else I can help you with? That's all, I said, waving him away. My hands fumbled at the keyboard as I tried to manipulate my digits. They were still sick with atrophy. Red hair, green eyes, freckles. Six matches came up. None that I was looking for, and it confirmed my beliefs. Excuse me, I asked the clone. Do you have retired jeans anywhere? Well, yes, but we can't show those to customers. Okay, well, thank you. I grabbed a brochure on the way out of the store. The brochure gave the orbit of the Selman's headquarters, somewhere near Mercury. Apparently they needed a lot of light and heat to create the blank frames for their clones. I set the cruiser to the directions in the pamphlet. It was almost a two-day trip from Jupiter to get to the inner rings. I kicked my feet up and shut my eyes and slept for the very first time. I had a dream of water. I didn't know where I was, but there was an uncomfortable sensation all around, a pressure that was building up. When I suddenly awoke, the console of the cruiser hummed quietly. I was about to drift back to sleep when I thought I saw something in the rear monitor. Maybe it was nothing, and then a flicker, a star briefly obstructed. It was probably just a twinkle in the star, and I tried relaxing again when the same star disappeared. Someone was behind me. I dug through the console to find a manual. There's a digital scan laser for long-distance viewing. I found the panel and pressed the button to deploy the laser. There was a sudden clunk that startled me as it began scanning. I watched as the obstructed star flickered back into view on the rear monitor. The readings from the scanner read that about 19,000 meters behind me, there was a motion blur of something. I stared at the scan for some time. It looked like a large cruiser of some sort, but I couldn't really tell. They must have had scan reflectors put in place. But why? I awoke again later in the same uncomfortable dream, except for this time, while underwater, I was joined by a pair of hands holding me there. Space was vast and empty. Odds of running into someone out here were microscopically rare, but odds of running into garbage were common. Old parts of refineries, satellites, and other debris known as film constantly floated through the vacuum. Most of it was small enough to be deflected by the ship's hulls, but occasionally there were rare, troublesome pieces. To avoid hull breaches, every ship had a long-range scanner mounted on its prow, detecting obstacles and changing the ship's trajectory if need be. But in this deep vacuum, out there in the drifts of space, there were stories of death balls. Dense, baseball-sized pieces of debris that had been accelerating faster and faster. 
They would move so fast and they were so dense that they would pop a hole through your ship and destroy everything in its path. My little cruiser buzzed through the fields of film that got denser and denser the closer I got to Earth. Now I could start to see ion thrusters of other ships as the gorgeous blue pearl swelled in front of me. I had never been to Earth, but wanted to go there before I died, and hopefully I would lose my stalker in the film. My cruiser was now shaking and twanged my neck with the amount of corrections it had to make as I approached the homeworld. I started to fly in as my ship took an abrupt turn for itself and a rough voice patched through my radio. You're entering sanctioned airspace. You're being directed to Lunar Base to clear customs. I pressed the buzzer back. Okay, thank you. Please don't use this channel. My cruiser swept over to the large elliptical orbiting base that made a low halo around the moon. The ship was pulled into a general docking bay. I grabbed my effects, documentation, and joined the crowds of people in the slate, low gray hallway outside my cruiser. People pressed and bumped into each other. An overwhelmed mother was carrying a crying baby as she ushered the three kids along. I walked with the crowds as a voice came out from behind me and firmly grabbed my shoulder. Hello, Sophie. It was the tall police officer with those reserved blue eyes. Oh my goodness, you startled me, I said, fanning myself. I know what you are. What do you mean? I said, struggling to get away from his grip. Let's do this outside so we don't scare any of the children. Let go of me, I shouted, ripping out of the officer's grip into the swarm of people. I ran through the throng, ducking under low light fixtures and around corners. An announcement went out over the megaphone as my face popped up on screens around the terminal. There is an unregistered clone in G6. Clone is presumed hostile and dangerous. There is an unregistered clone. A child screamed, pointing a stubby finger at me. I ran back in the direction of my ship as people shrieked and cringed as I forced my way through them. Move! A voice boomed from behind. I took a last glimpse over my shoulder and saw a valley of people duck out of the way. The tall police officer stood firm at the end, with his gun unholstered. The first shot boomed in the tight corridor as my shoulder exploded, throwing me to the ground. The cop walked over as people slid out of his way. Why'd you do it? The officer asked me. He, he tried to rape me. I, I didn't want to. I'm, I'm only five days old. I didn't want to. Damn shame. The officer fired a second shot through my skull. Mr. Selman asked Danny, the tall, dark-haired officer. The three men sat in a conference room in the Lunar Base Station. Sophie's hermer body drifted into a cruiser yesterday. There was still water in her lungs. She was drowned by her husband, who proceeded to clone her. 
Apart from that, Frank had a birthmark on him. Clones don't have birthmarks. Well, thank you very much for cleaning this up. I can't have my employees making unregistered clones in their space hollows, Mr. Selman said from behind his thick lenses. I'm paying everyone at the scene to keep this under wraps, as well as a large donation to the station. Is there anything you boys would like? The two police officers looked at each other. Danny, the tall one with reserved blue eyes, said, Despite having a psychotic husband, she was cute. I guess I wouldn't mind one of her. Well, normally we make our clones from our batch genes. I could recommend some for you. I've seen what I like, Mr. Selman. Sophie's got spunk, and if you want to keep this all quiet... Okay, we needn't say more. Thanks, Danny said smugly. Later that week, there she was. A Sophie Hermer, perfect and prepackaged, delivered to Danny's quarters. Where am I? she asked blearily. They were in Danny's bedroom in the Callisto police station, a structure the size of a large hotel orbiting the moon. Don't worry, you're safe, Danny said, patting her arm. Later that night, the two drifted off to sleep. No sex. Danny was just trying to make Sophie comfortable in her new apartment when she had a dream of a large police officer blowing her brains out. Danny awoke to a woman straddling him with a kitchen knife pressed gently into his Adam's apples. Why'd you bring me back? She said. I, I thought... Sophie pushed hard, grinding the knife into the man's spine. You sick fuck! She shouted into his dying eyes. You don't do this to a person. His body shook and lied still in the bed. She took a shower, got dressed, and found Danny's keys, knife, and gun. It was 2 a.m. and the station was in night mode. The hall lights were a little dimmer and most of the officers were sleeping. Sophie walked through the hallways keeping her head down. No one paid her much mind. She made it to the dock and matched the keychain with the squad car. A dock attendant tried to stop her but quickly found a knife hilt buried into his chest. Sophie hopped into the squad car and all the lights on the console remained black. She quickly realized she had no idea how to fly this thing and her fingers were lacking dexterity. Sophie watched from behind the tinted shield of the squad car as a police officer came into the bay and saw the dead attendant on the floor. He panicked and switched on the alarm. The base's sirens began to resonate with a booming whine. Sophie found the key console and started the ship up. It went into idle and hovered several feet above the ground until it turned off and fell to the ground with a thud. We've deactivated your ship, said a voice in the console. Come out with your hands up. Sophie looked out the front window. There's a small army of police officers flooding into the bay. We know you're in there, the consul said again. Come on out, and we won't hurt you. Sophie didn't care. They weren't going to upcycle her as soon as she exited. Danny's partner watched outside the ship with his gun drawn when there was a banging noise from inside the cockpit. She's down! All the cops started flooding the ship. Open it up! Open it up! kills two officers and commits suicide. The headlines read in the morning on the network. Can you believe this? Kyle said reading the display prompt as he ate breakfast. What's up? Matilda asked as she came down from upstairs. Just this shit, Kyle said indicating to the prompt. 
Matilda tapped a small button on the prompt, and a hologram of the news article popped out of the table. Holy shit, she said, scanning the article. A picture of Dr. Selman waving to a crowd was below the headline. Have they talked to Selman yet? It doesn't say, Kyle replied. He minimized his prompt. So what are you up to today? This, I guess, Matilda replied, engulfed by the story. This is huge. Hmm. Kyle mumbled, munching on cereal. You doing anything? Matilda responded. I might work in the shop a bit today, but I have to go visit my parents. Right, Matilda said. Kyle's mother had severe dementia and was at the point where they needed a home for her. I hope it goes well. We found a good place for her, Kyle said, munching. Professor Chaton walked in, a small gray and orange cat. Oh, hello, Professor, Matilda said as the cat flopped over on its belly getting rubbed. The cat was a Dolomer product, a competitor to Selman's. Kyle had gotten it for Matilda several months ago for their first anniversary. It had cost $1,200. Matilda had complained about the expense at first, but had fallen in love with the cat. Where are you going to start your story? Kyle asked Matilda. I don't know. I'll start at the source, I suppose. Matilda was a reporter for a smaller news source known as the Pigeonhole. The Valkyrie Network was the main news source for the solar system and seemed to get all the big stories before anyone else could know about it. The Valkyrie Network was also fully anonymous. Chairholder and employees remained off the grid. The Valkyrie Network was five years old, and the reason it had boomed was due to stories, content, writing, and honesty. It was generally hard to compete with. Matilda laid flat on her back. She was in a tiny high-speed cruiser as she worked on an opening for her new article. Her cruiser was set on autopilot to the Callisto station. The little ship had been supplied by Pigeonhole after Matilda got three articles with over two billion hits. It could reach nearly anywhere in the system in a matter of hours from Matilda's home. As she got near Callisto Station, the police patched into her intercom. This is a closed area. No visitors. I'm a friend of Danny Waldron, Matilda replied. There was a long pause. You'll be able to make your amends at his funeral procession in three days. Thank you. Please, Matilda said. He was a dear... No visitors, their voice repeated harshly. Turn around before we arrest you. Shit, Matilda swore to herself. The story would be old hat by then. Matilda sent a text to Chris Ferguson, her boss at Pigeonhole. Callisto Station Access? Question mark. A few moments later, she got a response. Too hot. She cursed. Matilda turned around and started heading back when she whizzed past several police tanks idled around a space hall. She took control with manual override and turned the cruiser sharply around and moseyed up. When a large tank spun and ignited a grid of yellow lights. Please move along, ma'am. What happened here? None of your business. Matilda turned on a probe scanner and saw three cops scavenging and cleaning up the space hall. The cop shook her vehicle and it began to pull it in with a magnetic tracker. I'm arresting you for unlawful use of a scanner. Matilda slapped a button, which depleted a large capacitor in the bowels of her ship and temporarily disrupted the tractor. She peeled out in high velocity from under the cop car and accelerated back towards Ida. I'm reporting your vehicle make, said the officer irritably. Matilda slowed and turned around. I'm a reporter from Pigeonhole. Can we talk? There was a pause again. Okay. His lights extinguished. Matilda came aboard the large police tank with a pen and notepad in her hand. Christine Delilah, she said, lying about her name, hoping he hadn't already looked her up. She extended a hand and received a firm shake from the officer who sat back down in the pilot seat from Pigeonhole. Bill Hibbert, first lieutenant of Callisto, said the short, blonde police officer. Matilda sat and looked at Bill, 
His skin looked clammy, and his eyes had sunken into large, deep sags. He looked at a man who was about to fall asleep, but forgot how to. Thanks for not arresting me, Matilda said. Thanks for not making me look like an ass, Bill replied. You're welcome, Matilda smiled. So I guess I'll ask you, why are you talking to me? You're a reporter, he replied frankly. Matilda waited a moment, and they began to talk. Amazing story, Matilda, Chris said, slinging an arm around her shoulder. Sophie Hermer, deceased and deceased, had gotten 8.5 billion hits. A party of 30 or so pigeonhole employees was on the roof of their headquarters in Salem, Oregon. Oh my God, Matilda, said Veronica. I'm so happy for you. Veronica had a head of dark purple hair that went well with the setting sun. The sky was in a deep haze of orange that surrounded the party in a blanket of humidity. Where did you get the officer? Chance, I saw them near Callisto. She had told the story a hundred times already. Unbelievable, really, Veronica said wildly. She was huge into celebrity gossip and annoyed Matilda whenever they had interacted. Did you hear about Salmons? Yeah, I, I didn't mean for it to happen that way, Matilda replied. Salmons cloning had plummeted into bankruptcy. Good news has strange effects, Veronica said. Well, congratulations again. Thanks, Matilda said uncomfortably. Kyle walked up, swirling a drink, seeing that Matilda wanted some familiar company. Nice night, he said, as they both leaned against the handrail facing the party. Everyone was celebrating the success and popularity that they had given Pigeonhole, but Matilda was exhausted. It is, Matilda replied. You want to go for a walk? Sure. The two made their way down the elevator. Hey, Matilda, where are you going? Someone asked her. I'll be right back, she politely acknowledged. Matilda and Kyle walked down to the street of Salem. It was a busy Sunday night, and the town had a fever. Well, I'm really proud of you, said Kyle. Thanks. The two walked comfortably with each other in the hazy Oregon evening. The next day, the death threats started pouring in. Clone owners had started euthanizing their clones out of fear, and clones were not happy. Matilda and Kyle had been moved to the pigeonhole safe house in Perth, Australia. The world had gone through 40 years of a cloning golden age that had come crashing down in two days. On the fourth day, Governor Denzel of Earth had declared that clones be made illegal and began having them shipped to off-world camps. Underground groups spastically developed throughout the solar system as the clones hid and fought for their lives. Matilda was devastated beyond imagination, but still the onslaught of letters poured into her mail. The safe house was in a small suburban villa, that was owned under a fake identity. Hidden guards waited outside, watching ready to be called in at any moment. Matilda paced around the kitchen. I've got to get out of here, Matilda said. We can't go anywhere, Kyle said firmly yet tensely. It's been a week, Kyle, Matilda snapped. Kyle looked startled, and Matilda felt bad for snapping at him. She sagged to the counter. I can't just sit here. You know, this is stupid. I'm a reporter, 
She looked at Kyle. I have to be where things are. I know it's tough. It's inappropriate. It just doesn't work. It's not what I do, Matilda concluded. Kyle tried holding her, but she walked out of the kitchen and ran upstairs to grab her jacket and keys. Kyle was in the living room when Matilda came downstairs. Why, Matilda? His shoulder sunk. You don't... Matilda walked down the stairs and hugged him. You know I have to, she said, kissing him on the head. I know, he said, hugging her back. I just wish you didn't. I'll be back soon, I promise. You should stay with your dad. She gave him a squeeze and left him feeling low, standing in the living room. She was out the door when a guard jumped out of a car and quickly walked up behind her. You should go back inside, he said as he accelerated. She turned around to address him. No, I am leaving. I'll tell Chris if I'm coming back and need you. Let me drive you, at least. Stubborn and irritated, she replied, Okay. Salem looked empty as they cruised over the rooftops. Only a few cars were in the gray, foggy sky as they drove to the local hangar. Matilda was a resident of Earth and had a small enough craft that she could legally park in the Earth hangars. The hangar entrance was nearly vacant, a large, open, concrete auditorium that quietly played music. The guards escorted Matilda to her base station, where her ship was nested. They did a sweep of the cabin and bid her farewell. Matilda hopped in the ship and took off rocketing through the atmosphere back into space. She was looking up leads and tried punching in directions when nothing happened. Her ship was propelling forward on its own. Matilda jammed on the control stick and pointlessly shouted for help as nothing functioned. Her ship had been hijacked. For a day, Matilda flew helplessly, trapped inside her ship as she ate all of the emergency rations. She grew colder and colder as her ship abandoned the sun for the outer reaches of the solar system. The moon, Triton, hung directly in front of her as she began to decelerate. A small black circular base in an envirosphere was built on the surface of the moon. A clear sphere shot out of a small cannon next to the base and carefully caught Matilda's ship. The sphere locked the ship into the center of it with magnets and was taken control by a larger magnet on the planet side that guided the sphere into a cylindrical airlock. The sphere was then ushered and docked in a corresponding slot and popped open. Then the cockpit of her ship opened, exposing Matilda to a large interior bay and a small party awaiting her arrival. She looked around at the party, and then... Pain. When she awoke a moment later in a strange bedroom, her body was stiff and ached with movement. What had happened? She mustered some movement, and the light snapped on. The room was eerie and felt fake. She looked down and saw a pile of clothes at the foot of her bed. What had they done? Introduce Dr. Arthur X. Dolomer, behemoth of Earth, superclone, and first infinite man, was the leader of the clone resistance. Sixty-five years ago, Arthur and his assistant, Herman Selman, discovered the key to cloning. The young Selman took credit for the discovery and sold out his mentor. Dolomer was then employed by the government and died four years after his employment due to a rare blood condition, but not before he managed to make a clone of himself. 
Since then, he repeatedly tampered with his genetics, making him smarter and stronger with each progressive series. And now that half-monster, half-man, sat in front of Matilda, looking very pleased with itself. Don't you see what we've done? He asked Matilda. It's a new world out there. We can create humans six times as strong, that live six times as long. Intergalactic travel will soon be possible for the human species. Matilda sat quietly in front of him. Come now, how can you be glum about that? She held a small metal cup in her hand. She experimented and easily crushed it into a ball. Matilda looked up at Dr. Dolomer, and her eyes beat red with hate. Kyle hadn't heard from Matilda after that day she'd left Perth. Six months had passed since then, and there was a moon base on Triton that had self-imploded and clones were nearly extinct. Selman got indicted and Dolomer was never found. Kyle's mom had died and now he sat alone with his dad. The two of them were on a porch drinking iced tea. Sometimes I just look out there, his dad said. And I wonder why things happen. I wonder why any of this happened. He paused. But then I remember there's the times you enjoy. And that's what really matters. That's all that really matters. He looked over at Kyle. Enjoy your life, son, while you can. Sometimes, that's all you can do. Diode was written, read, composed, and produced by myself, Simon Lacey. I hope you enjoyed the vacuum, and I'll be back on in a month. Thanks. Thanks.